So as you guys are seated, I just want to introduce somebody to you that's going to be coming to, to speak the word with us today. Uh, we uh, have had somebody in the past, uh, so Craig Legel is somebody who has been here in the past, uh, was my youth pastor. Uh, and if you will ask him, and you know, maybe he will, you know, he'll probably tell you exactly what I was like when I was young, but um, he'll, he'll be happy to share with you that out of all of... <laughs> Out of all of the youth, I was probably not the one he ever expected to, to be up here introducing him. Uh, and I have to credit Craig that uh, he will say that he didn't do anything for me as, as I walked through my relationship with God. But God did reveal a lot of things through Craig and has helped me with that. Uh, so I just want to introduce you to Craig. So he has been a youth pastor here in the past. He had transitioned and moved to Lake Mills, where he is a senior pastor over there, uh, and he has come to, to share with us today uh, what he's been learning out of 1 Samuel. So I uh, just want you guys to give him a warm welcome and thank him for coming with us. Well, thank you. Is this, this good? You can hear me? All right. Uh, yeah, I was headed down as David started to speak to give my version of the story. Um, but no, it's been, it's really good to be back driving in this morning, a lot of reminiscing, some familiar faces. Uh, I was here from 2000 to 2005, so only five years, but uh, was in this building when it was built, and uh, Dave stole my old office. I kind of thought they would leave that alone and uh, turn it into a little bit of a museum, but whatever. <laughs> good stewardship reigns here, so... Uh, but it's good to be back, and uh, I want to thank you, a lot of you who know our family, have prayed for our family, and I have the two girls with me uh, today, but Carrie, our uh, daughter, Michaela, son, Jeremiah, Bella, and then our little guy, Josiah, has been in your prayers a lot, and he's doing pretty good these days, so I'll talk about him in a little bit, but if you have a Bible, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 17, probably one of the most famous chapters in the Scriptures uh, that many of us know, if you grew up in the church, you grew up in Sunday school, this is, this is David and Goliath. But what we don't know is really what the text says a lot. We know how the story is supposed to go, if you will. Uh, but, but this is a story that it's good to get in God's Word to see uh, what God's Word actually says about David and Goliath and what we can learn. And so our church has been going through a series on First Samuel. It's been really fruitful and really timely for all that's going on in our world as well. Uh, yeah, if you're a kid, I'm supposed to dismiss you, right? Or they just know. They just know when the guy starts talking, leave. All right, yeah, chocolate. If I'd have known that, I'd have sat in the front row. But anyway, 1 Samuel 17, we'll dive in. I uh, feel like I need to get to it because uh, Dave had extra long announcements this morning. So that cuts into my time significantly. All right. I'm going to read the second part. So this is the beginning of the battle scene. I took this in two parts as a second part of a two-part deal. But this is like the action part, all right? So David has already been uh, up to the line of battle to meet his brothers. He's kind of curious. And there's a key verse there in, uh, the, in verse 23, I believe, where David heard what was going on. He heard Goliath and his taunts. And so we'll come back to that. But we pick up here in verse 38 through 58, and I'll read it, and then I'll pray for us. It says, Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor 
and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut, you, cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine rose and came to draw near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shearaham as far as Gath and Ekron. And people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Well, that is the word of God, and I would ask you to just pray now and ask God to speak. If you've never done that before, just a simple prayer. Say, God, would you speak to my heart, and I'll pray for us collectively now. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, for this amazing story this narrative of David and Goliath, which maybe some of us are here today and we think we know how this goes, and I pray that your word would speak. Maybe we'd see something new in the word that we've never seen before, that your spirit would move among us now in a way that speaks directly to our hearts where we're at in life, that we would know your son Jesus better, that we would know him and long to follow him more faithfully. And we pray these things in his precious name. And all God's people said... Let me start with a question as we begin. What do you think Christian victory is? 
What do you think Christian victory is? Now, if you're a churchgoer and if you would claim Christ, you might say, I, I believe in Christian victory. At least most of us believe in that when we die at the end, right? We long for the victory we have in Christ's death and resurrection that one day we will meet him again and we will experience new life forever. But in the day-to-day, do you believe in Christian victory? What do you think it is? I had a conversation recently with someone that uh, made a comment that struck me as I looked uh, into this text and really thought about a lot what they were saying. And, and you don't, it doesn't matter what the context of the conversation was, really. This is a believer that said this back to me about something that they were needing to trust God with. And not a foolish thing, but something that they had really had anxiety and fear over. And they made this comment, and it really stuck out to me. They said, when I challenged them about a certain decision, they said this, I just can't take the risk. I just can't take the risk. That came out of their mouth about a decision that, that they had seemingly not been trusting God about. And again, this wasn't a foolish, like, unwise decision that, that they were going to do something with their money or something like this. This was just like a trusting God, getting back into the rhythm of life, and they said, I just can't take the risk. And as I thought about that comment more, I thought about that in two ways. One, how often have I, maybe not uttered those words, but said that in my heart, in my own life, I can't take the risk. And the second part is as a believer, somebody that is supposed to trust in God, how foolish that must sound to a sovereign God who is in care of control of all things. I just can't take the risk. How silly must that sound to a God whose children are supposed to trust him with a radical faith. And as we come to this text, I, do you think David said that as he assessed the giant in the battlefield that day? I'm quite certain all the other Israelites would have said it as they peered down into the valley because nobody was going to go towards this guy to deal with this. I mean, after all, what is Christian victory? Do we understand it? Do we live in it? Do we believe that God is capable of it and in it? If we do, then why don't we often live like it as believers? Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about some name it or claim it theology. That we believe we can do whatever we want and that, that God will always come through for us. No, I, this is about in Christ, if we believe that Jesus Christ went to the cross, defeated death and sin forever, that we just understand that if we believe that God has accomplished the miraculous in our salvation and defeated the greatest enemy that we would ever have in life, what would we have to fear in life that would be too risky for us? When it comes to faith, what kind of sentence is, I just can't take the risk? That's fitting as we remembered Memorial Day just a week ago, right? Can you imagine that any service member in our military would utter such a sentence, I just can't take the risk? No. That would be a foreign concept. They place their lives in harm's way all of the time. And so this morning, I pray that as we come to this text, that you would hear God and that you'd be challenged to live big things for a big God, have a big faith in God. Now, I put these three points on the screen. I think they'll be there. And I do this so people can follow along. I think that, yeah, there they are. Um, and if you're like my kids, it's a good time tracker, all right? But just a few weeks ago, my, uh, I think it was my son 
And younger daughter said, uh, Dad, I was following through your points, and those are really helpful because a lot of people can't write them down all the way. But it was like 30 minutes in, and you were only through point one. And so I, I'll just I'll acknowledge that's happening. But I'll have, they're, they're up there so we can move through them. Three points, really simple. I'll go through them. The victory belongs to the Lord. That's the first one. The second is God demonstrates his victory through weakness. And the third, because of Christ's victory, we have victory. The first one there, the victory or the battle belongs to the Lord. If you go all the way back to verse 37, the verse right before of what we read, it kind of tells us that Saul must have known that David was going to go out into the battlefield trusting the Lord. He conceded to that fact. Now, if you know about King Saul, you know that God was with him for a time. The people of Israel had prayed for a king. They had desired, not even prayed for, they asked for a king. Even though Samuel was a priest, God gave them what they wanted. Saul turned out to be not what they wanted. And the Spirit of the Lord has departed Saul. But he conceded to the fact that David, this young boy, was going to go into the battlefield as all of his army, himself included, was standing on the sidelines cowardly in fashion. And he would have known that God could do things because the Spirit was once on Saul. The Spirit was on him and Saul knew that God had power. Now, was this a crazy idea that David was going to walk into this? Of course it was. But back then, was crazy really that crazy when it came to faith? I mean, they had seen God work in mighty ways. They're not terribly removed from the Red Sea incident. Saul himself is not terribly far removed from conquering Philistines himself. And here is young David going to step out into the battlefield. And it's crazy, but to them, maybe not as much. And yet, How many times do we doubt his power in our lives? Now, an interesting note here is that Saul clothes David with his armor at first. We see that in verse 38. He puts a helmet of bronze, coat of mail, and it's ironic because Saul is still the king. David is the anointed king. Remember all the brothers lined up and Jesse's sons. It's like, is there one more? He's out on the field. He comes in. He's been anointed. But Saul is the king. And now he's fitting the new king that God has appointed to Israel with his armor. And it's interesting too because apparently David never tried it on. If you know the story of David's life, at this point he's worked himself up as Saul's armor bearer. But he's never tested this stuff. I have this vision when I read the text like David's off in some corner when he's carrying Saul's armor around like you know, like young kids do, they're trying it on, like, and nobody knows, trying it on. And he never did that, because this is too big. And so Saul puts this on him and says, nope, armor, too heavy, won't work, too big, haven't tested it. Instead, what was his choice of weaponry to fight the giant? We know it, right? In verse 40, it says, he took his staff in his hand, a shepherd's staff, And he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. Five smooth stones. Remember, where David has been trained is not in the palace, but in the pasture. We know the story of David defeating lions and bears with weaponry like this. This is not only who he was, but what he used in the deliverances that God gave him. Now, I brought this with me. This is we think of a slingshot. This is a gift that Carrie gave me after I graduated seminary classes. And uh, it's actually made in the Middle East. I have a certificate of authenticity. <laughs> I did not bring that with me, so now you'll doubt that, but that's fine. But here's a slingshot. Much We think of slingshots as something you can get at Walmart, the little, you know, fork little thing and the little bing. But this was a weapon that David would have used in that time 
a little stone put in that and slung that around, and I'm not going to hit somebody today. Carrie says I have a really bad shot. I did that with our church, and it did not go over well. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't throw a stone. But we think about this weapon, and we like, and this is important in the text, we like as believers to do in-depth Bible studies. And, and when we come to a text like this, you say, you know, you stop and you pause at verse 40 and say, why five stones? Why five? What's the significance of five stones? Why did David choose five? That's got to mean something. And sometimes the numbers in the Bible do mean something. But I think if you get stuck in that, we'll spend hours debating this in our Bible studies, but you'll miss the whole point of the passage in, in, in the context of what it, God is saying as you do that. Think about this moment like your point of view. If you're going down to choose stones for the battle, don't you want an extra shot? I don't know why five. You'll see this at the end of the text where we read just at the end of the passage that Saul doesn't recognize who son David, like he should know, right? Now it's a flashback, but like, well, maybe, again, we like to open our Bibles, and this is important for the message today. We like to open our Bibles as believers and sit around and be like, well, does Saul have amnesia? Maybe he was getting old. Why doesn't he know? I don't know. But that's not the point of the passage. David chooses this weapon because that's who he is. The point of the story is simply this. David needed no weapons of war. He didn't need them. He wasn't fighting in his own strength. The Spirit has come on David. This isn't spiritual arrogance either. It was a faithful confidence in God that God would deliver him once again. He had always given credit to God, and it was well worth the risk. Now, by the time you get to verse 41, this is the beginning of what would be considered a most epic of showdowns. And you need to picture this scene. I know many of us grew up in Sunday school, and we know that David and Goliath, and maybe you can remember the little felt on a board or whatever it was for you, but you need to picture the scene here. Especially if you're into like prize fighting, boxing, MMA, whatever it is, here's the scene. In this corner, weighing nine foot six, weighing, or weighing, weighing 600 pounds, nine foot six beast in the blue trunks, right? Goliath of Gath. Picture what he has here. He has someone with him to carry his shield. He has a 126 pound metal t-shirt on not a heavy metal t-shirt a metal t-shirt it's made of metal a bronze helmet bronze javelin across his chest a giant spear 15 pound spearhead big shiny sword impressive opponent now look over on the other side in this corner wearing the ruddy red shorts, five foot six, 130 pounds soaking wet, like really soaking wet. The handsome little Hebrew boy, David of Bethlehem. Shepherd staff and a slingshot in hand. Not impressive at all, right? Classic David versus Goliath. This is the picture. This is a good time to just pause here and observe the observers in the scene. It's always good when you read the Bible 
to observe what's going on, but here you have to observe the observers. After all, Philistines are on one side of the valley, the Israelites are on the other. What are they saying? I mean, what is the over-under on this one? Is this where bets start flying out? Like the Philistines looking at this and going like, are you kidding me? And the Israelites, their jaw open, gaped open, like, there's no way. This is impossible. This is against all odds. Somebody get him out of there. The risk is far too great. You got to keep in mind that the cowardly people of God are usually the naysayers when somebody steps out in faith. It's usually church people. When somebody steps out in faith and says, I really, now sometimes people think they hear from God and maybe he's not saying, but when sometimes people go up against a counterintuitive thing, a thing of faith, it's often the, the people of God that are often the naysayers. You can't do that. That's not safe. That's not wise. You can't go and serve in that foreign country. Those people are dangerous. You can't take the risk. And here are the Israelites saying the same thing. In fact, this is where the trash talk starts, right? I feel like this is where it all started in the Bible at this scene. Goliath shouts, taunts. He's offended that the Israelites have thrown this little stick out to this dog to play with. And he's like, this is the best you've got? Being offended that they've sent this coward out. You see that in verse 43. He says, I'm going to make bird food out of you. What are you doing? And then the text says something really important in verse 43. It says the Philistine cursed David by his gods. That's really key there. He cursed David by his gods. Now, if you know the story and you can look back into chapter 5, who were the Philistines' gods? If you go back to chapter 5, you'll find out after they had stolen the ark and captured it, they, are, they have the ark of the covenant in their presence, and they go back and their god, Dagon, has fallen over because you don't mess with God. And they go and they prop their god back up. And the next morning they go, and the head is cut off, and the hands are cut off, and he's tipped over again. The Philistines' gods were ones that you had to prop up. There were idols, right? That's who the Philistines' gods were. They had no real power. And this is important because our gallery of opponents in the world believe that the battle belongs to them. But they have no power. Only the appearance of such, and it's not impressive to God, nor was it impressive to David. Look at verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, and you think he said it like this, you come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin. No. Little David stood before Goliath. You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin? That's how you come to me? I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have just mocked, by the way. You come to me with weapons of war, but I come to you with something far more impressive. The God of angel armies. Yahweh, the God of Israel. After all, this story, and this is why I think we miss it, is not much, as much a battle against two men as it was between the false gods of the Philistines and the one true God of heaven. You always have to think bigger and above the text in Scripture. And with such confidence, David declares in verse 46, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. That's confidence. Not only that, I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. 
He says with such confidence today, not your gods and not even I, but my God will win the battle. I will strike you down and cut your head off. And not only that, but the rest of your army too. And David tells them what the result that will, what is the result that will come from what is about to happen. Two things. One, that the world will know there is a God of heaven. He says that's one result, that there will be known that God is the one true God in heaven. And that two, that the people of God, remember the Israelites are just watching all of this unfold. The people of God who already know God will see the power of God. This is important, right? This is important because Christian people often have heads full of knowledge about God, but not hearts full of faith. We know a lot about who God is. We know God. The Israelites knew God. They knew it was their, their, their God, Yahweh. They worshipped Him. He told them, they saw Him in deliverance, in power, act many times. But their hearts didn't trust Him enough in that way. God doesn't need the sword and the spear. And so I'd ask you that. Do you believe that? For your battles that you fight on a daily basis, that God does not need the weapons you think He needs the strategy that you think he needs to take in your life to gain the victory. The battle belongs to the Lord. The victory belongs to the Lord. If you look back at verse 23, which I referenced, it says that David heard him. When he heard the taunts, he knew he had to act. He just knew in his spirit that he had to step towards this. And his first inclination was not to assess the risk. His first inclination was to say, you know what? God has delivered me every other time. The battle belongs to him. Now, I need to be clear about something. Because remember, this isn't about writing checks that you can't cash. People do live like that in our world. They trust God for things and they don't, they think foolishly and they just do. This isn't that. This is when God is uniquely asking you, especially individually, but even as a church body, to uniquely do what he has called you to do. And it's important because when you act boldly in faith to accomplish the mission of God, not your own mission, not the one that you think is the mission, but when you trust God and the mission that he's giving you and trust that all the battles you face actually belong to God, two things happen. The world sees God. The world knows that God is powerful in your life and the people of God see the power of God. They see your faith in action, and it actually is a motivator for the church. It's motivating to the cowardly people of God often that are not stepping out in the victory that belongs to God. When they say, I don't have the right gifts. I don't have the right words. I don't have the right money. I don't have the right resources. I don't have the right weapons. Or even the strength. I'm so glad you mentioned strength because that leads me to my second point. If you're checking your watch here. That God demonstrates His victory through weakness. You see, we have to think that God acts all the time through these amazing, giant, powerful ways. We like to think that, you know, when you see somebody in our world, in the, in the Christian world, if you will, acting for the kingdom, like God's doing all these bold, that's just not how he works all the time. Often he doesn't work that way at all, in fact. Here's a young man, weak by all the world's standards, standing in front of the massive warrior. And I think all of us could identify with this. In the world, when there's persecution, all of us, I'm sure, I've had it 
We feel insignificant at times and weak and awkward. We're aliens, right, as believers. Weak by the world's standards. And here he is standing in front of the massive warrior with a slingshot and a stone. And it says in verse 48, he runs right towards it. Look at that. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line. He was facing this thing head on. And David put in his hand and his, his, put his hand in his bag and he took out the stone and says he swung this thing around and struck the Philistine right in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and fell face to the ground. David prevailed over the Philistine with the sling and the stone and struck the Philistine down and killed him. Here's the thing, even as I've just shown you and said, people, you know, they analyze this thing and you said, oh, you know, again, Bible scholars, oh, a slingshot was like a weapon. It was like, if you knew how to use one of these things and you wound it upright, you could shoot this thing like 100, 110 miles an hour. This was a serious weapon. And they like to like, you know, think about how this would have been like a real, and it was a skillful tool for David, but again, you get into the details there. And people, like how accurate David must have been and he did like target practice and he was a skilled warrior in that way. You don't understand. This was a big deal. But when you understand this text rightly, you start to realize that God doesn't even need the sling and the stone, right? It's not about that. Do you know that a word could have been spoken from God and the Goliath would have just toppled? We like to like, Look at the details, like, well, will God use this? And it was a week. Like, have you ever seen Gladiator, you know, like the emperor? And it's like, like, that's, God, that could have been just that. He didn't need the sling and the stone. He didn't need David. This wasn't about all of that. This is about God and his power. Noting here that David just knocks Goliath to the ground. He stuns him. You know, some people in the body, like, well, he must have hit him in, like, in the medical. Matt would identify with this, right? In the medical, he must have hit him in the temple. That's where he must have gotten struck. That would daze him. It hit him in the head. He goes down. That's not how he dies. David runs over to him and he cuts his head off. I mean, this is unbelievable. Incredible, really. And I think what happens in the church is we're conditioned to think that God doesn't work in incredible, unbelievable ways like that. Because Sometimes he doesn't work the way that we want him to. When we struggle in faith over disease or over big trials or obstacles, and we say, like, God could, we, he could just show up and he doesn't, and we're conditioned to believe God just doesn't act in that kind of power anymore. We ask God for a big thing and he doesn't respond with the answer we want, the miracle, the healing, the timing. And here's the problem as I see it, even sadly as I live it out in my own life at times. We have become a people of God focused, too focused on the would God. And then we spend time arguing about the should God when the thing we ought to keep in our gaze, the only thing that actually belongs to faith, is the could God. Do you get that? We spend way too much time on the would God in our prayers. We argue in the church theologically about should God well, if he was a loving God, then of course he wouldn't let sick kids have cancer and people die. But all that our faith holds is only the could God. Do you believe that God could at any moment? That's the only thing that belongs 
to a person of faith. The rest are in his sovereign hand. Some of you know this. They don't know a lot, and some of you are new to maybe me and our family, but our, our youngest boy, Josiah, had his 11th birthday last week, and we celebrated it. And it was bittersweet because he's a young boy that struggles with a lot of medical stuff. And in many ways, he's been with us maybe 11 years longer than we ever thought he would be. But he's a weak 42-pound boy who doesn't talk and doesn't walk. And we prayed and prayed for him. And as I thought about his life this last week, I remember Jeremiah, our 16-year-old, as a 6-year-old boy 10 years ago. We would pray together in the kitchen. I remember before a big surgery that we had, Jeremiah had prayed, and I remember it was the sweetest prayer from a 6-year-old boy. He prayed, why, didn't, why don't you just heal him, God, like Jesus did in all those stories in the Gospels? And I remember Carrie and our heart just sank in that. That's what we wanted. But I remember that was his prayer. It was a simple, God, I know you could do this. But that one doesn't belong to us. The could God does. That's not what God has desired in Josiah's life, the would God or should God for all the people that have prayed for his healing. To believe that he could get up one day and walk right out of that wheelchair and speak. Could God? You bet he could. God is able. He could accomplish the strong victory through the weak and fragile. And that's what we lean our hearts full of faith into. And they are weak. Weakened hearts, by the way. After all, what does 2 Corinthians 12 remind us? Paul is speaking about the thorn in the flesh. And you remember this text, right? This famous verse that's coming. He says, though if I should boast, I would, be, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he comes, than he sees in me and hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, right? Strong in the world's eyes, because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, the wood God, right? God, would you take this away? God, would you take this away? God, would you take this away? But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the glad, more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with the weaknesses, the insults, the hardships, the persecutions, and the calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Can you imagine the scene when little Hebrew boy David is standing over the body of Goliath? I mean, the whole thing probably took seconds. What are the observers, the gallery saying now? Anything at all? I think in that moment you could hear a pin drop. Shock on the faces of the Philistines. And my guess and wonder is deep regret on the faces of the Israelites. For this is their God. And they knew he had power, but none of them were brave enough to trust by faith in that power. They were risk assessors. And here comes verse 51. Then David ran and he stood over him and took his sword and drew out of its sheath and killed him and cut his head off. When the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. I read this verse over and over 
the Philistines fleeing after David takes the head off of this thing. And I keep hearing the lyric of this song. Some of you know it. The great I am. The bridge comes along. And it says, the mountains shake before you. The demons run and flee. At the mention of the name King of Majesty, there is no power in hell or any who can stand before the power and the presence of the great I am. The great I am. Even the demons run and hide. And God demonstrates his power through weakness. Why, you ask? Because he chooses to do it this way, so he gets all the glory. Friends, if you came here today feeling weakened in the battle of faith this day, do you know that God does his most powerful work through your weakness? Some of you are waiting for the right weapons of war to come along because you think God has just not provided what you need. Some of us Christians in the world, even politically, God has just not given us. You're just waiting. You think God has not provided what you need to win the battle. Just like those Israelites are stalled out for 40 days on the side of the valley, waiting for the right hero to come along and take Goliath out. And you know what God did and what he does? God demonstrates his victory through weakness. Isaiah 40:29 reminds us of that. He gives power to the faith and to him who has no might, he increases strength. He did it that day on the battlefield and most importantly, he did it through his son, Jesus Christ. Which transitions us to our third and final point. Because of Christ's victory, we have victory. We ought not find it too fascinating that God would author the story this way. We must remember, David, you have to know this, David does not represent us in the story. That's what a lot of kids grow up like, oh, be like David. Have faith like David. David was, David doesn't actually represent us. He represents Jesus. You see, we miss that often. So many of us living out, trying to live out a strong faith, wondering why, looking like we need to be more like David. No, that's the point. David is Christ in the story. You can't be strong enough. Only Christ's power in you. Jesus, the high king of heaven, came down in humility to Bethlehem. You see that imagery? We know that, right? David foreshadows the coming Christ, the root of Jesse. Not to be served, Jesus came, but to serve. Not to condemn the world, but to save it. And he performs miracles, and Jesus hushes the waves and wind with his voice and it casts out demons and they run and hide and he raises up the dead, not the mostly dead, the dead dead. Princess Bride reference, some called it. And he calls them out of the grave and then he proclaims the good news of the gospel and he declares that all who believe in him would never die but be raised to new life. He then goes to the cross and took God's wrath against sin, the punishment that belongs to each of us, rebellious, terrible people. And he rises victoriously over it. He slays the giant we could not slay ourselves. What was the over-under on that one? What were the odds on that? That this God-man born in Bethlehem could reverse the punishment of the curse of sin on God's people. There's no way. It's impossible. Get him out of there. Not for God. I mean, can you imagine? Now Jesus felt this in the garden, but could you imagine if right before the cross he just says this to God, you know what? I just can't take the risk. 
I just can't do it. You and I, we'd be hopeless. We'd have nothing. And yet here is Jesus, our victor, standing over the greatest enemy that you and I will ever face, the greatest battle, sin and death. And he has cut the head off this thing. And the demons run and hide. They flee at the power of his name. Christian, if you truly believe, truly believe that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he did, there is no greater enemy that needs defeating. No more giant to battle bigger than your own sin and your own death. And if you believe he has done it, and if he has done it, there is no risk you can take too risky for the sake of Christ. There is just no risk. Riskier. Sadly, we just don't often in the church believe that and live like that. This isn't about like just being strong enough through ups and downs. People tell Carrie and I all that all the time. They come and say, like, I don't know how you do it. And I don't even know what to say to that anymore. Like, we don't. That's the point. We don't. And it's not some gross humility. It's just like on our own, we're just, we're not impressive at all. It's about living in the victory that Christ gave us. Does that mean that your sick child will be healed? Maybe not. Does that mean that your marriage will be fixed on this earth? Maybe not. Does that mean that you will have the perfect job and all the extra money you want? Maybe not. Does that mean you'll have enough equity in your house, enough money in retirement, the right medical treatment for your disease? Maybe not. But if you have Christ and his victory, what else do you need? Jesus has defeated the grave. So why do we fear death? Why do believers fear that? Jesus has conquered sin. So why do we fear persecution and ridicule? Jesus has given us new life. So why do we live in the depravity of our broken ones? What do we have to fear? Fact is, we couldn't and can't beat Goliath. David is a picture of Christ for us, the children of Israel in that. Remember, we're not David in the story. Our role then is like the children of Israel. To have seen from the sides what God has done and then to live in response according to lives of radical faith and then charge out after the enemy. Charge out living for Christ and his kingdom to live in victory. So wrapping this up, what is God saying to you? What really difficult thing is God asking from you? And some of us might just say, I can't take the risk. Maybe it's to forgive somebody. Maybe it's to walk towards something that you just know God is asking you to do. Maybe it's to share Christ with a friend. True gospel ministry, true radical faith. You can choose to make Christ's mission your mission in the world, or you can choose to just sit on the edge of the mountain and stare into the valley day after day, waiting in fear, and just move on with life. Listen to this. Knowing about God, but not actually doing anything about it. Never really living in victory, and it's got to change. You see, some of us, and I'll just say this, some of us have been tricked into thinking that you're actually living out the Christian life, but you don't share Christ with your friends, you don't give your money generously to gospel ministry, you don't actually listen to what God is saying, and you don't actually do it. I'm a guest preacher, so I can say that, offend you, and then leave. But I would say this, the time for the church, for lazy American Christianity to end is now. 
Let me ask you this. What is too risky for you right now that the enemy has you in doubt saying, I just can't take the risk? The thing that needs your obedience, and I don't know what that is, but I know you need to ask God, and I know he'll tell you, and when he does, you need to step out in faith and trust him with it. I don't know that God will give us exactly all that we want, but I know this, that Christians should never lose the could God kind of faith. For David, his response that day was God's reputation is at stake. No one mocks God, and he steps towards that. He says, I will certainly risk my life for people that that they would know that you don't defy the Lord of hosts. For us today, the same ought to be said about us. Others' eternity is at stake. Will you be bold with the gospel of Jesus Christ so that people will know him? Will you give up everything for the sake of kingdom living? Will you rely on his grace and strength even in your weakness? Because of Christ's victory, we have victory. And maybe for some of you, you're here today, and even trusting Christ is the too risky for you. You can do that today and look at what Jesus has done for you and trust that he has conquered your greatest enemy, sin and death, and you can place your faith in him and look to him and trust in his death at the cross for salvation. He alone is our only hope. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you know that the battle belongs to him and that you have the victory because of him having the victory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are gracious and kind. And Father, we are a people who have been in our own minds strong, but we are weak. And we're often weakened by life and its hurdles and obstacles, and many of us know that all too well. And God, many of us even know the story of David and Goliath. But it's a reminder again that our victory is not victory because of us, it's because of you. And Father, we need to trust and find hope in who you are, being a people of God that live out radical lives of faith, even in the face of big challenges, big risks. And Father, may we be a people of God that never say the risk is too great for us. So God, I pray that that you would empower these people to trust you, to face whatever they're facing, knowing that, that it is through your power and strength that you provide victory because of Jesus and in him alone. And Father, if there is one here that has never trusted Christ by faith, maybe they even think they have, but they have never surrendered their life to you, that they would bow before you this moment and give their heart of faith to you, to look on you, not themselves, for the victory humbly seeking your forgiveness and repenting and turning away from their sin and trusting Christ for it. God, you are so good to us to look on us with love and grace and compassion. On our own, we are hopeless, but Father, with you, we have the victory. So Father, empower this people in Darlington to serve you with might and glory to reach people from Christ in this region, in this area. God, this is a special place to me. You know that that they would continue the mission and work here, that all would know that there is a God in heaven who saves. And then when the people of God see that kind of faith, it would motivate more to do the same. May you receive all the glory and honor. And we praise you in the power of Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. You can stand and we'll sing, I suppose. That's right. All right.